This is Southern Arch Heretic, Shifting the Burden, Arguing the Elements. We continue to address each element and the proof presented. I'm Kit Rogers, and I have some questions. Welcome back to my Shifting the Burden series, where the proof for the existence of God is placed into a criminal trial setting, and the burden is on the believer to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The non-believer is presumed correct in our exercise. How does the evidence hold up? Let's explore it. We've been discussing the elements. Let's keep going. Element 5. Jesus is the Son of God and Divine. I hope that if you've somehow avoided, refused, or just couldn't manage the time to read the three synoptic gospels and John, as well as the rest of the New Testament, that you will. Mainly because if you're one of those individuals that believe that Jesus made claims of divinity, you may be surprised to find out that he really didn't. I've already expressed to you that You most likely would be instructed by the judge that you can't consider anything in the Bible when deliberating for the purposes of this exercise. I won't be able to shout this loud enough, but there's zero credibility or reliability to any possible statements in Scripture. Jesus never wrote anything, and any supposed quote was written by an individual or individuals that never met Jesus, and so could not have heard the statement firsthand. I'd like to call it hearsay, but I don't think it even rises to that level of reliability. It's did not hearsay. If you believe that the narratives in the four New Testament Gospels are literal fact and contain direct quotes from Jesus, that belief is a matter of blind faith and clearly not based upon reliable, non-conflicting evidence. With that being said, we're going to address the arguments put forward by the believers on their own turf. Scripture. When did Jesus claim divinity? Where in the New Testament Gospels did Jesus say he was God or divine? It appears that in most cases, those arguing that Jesus made claims of divinity refer primarily to the Gospel of John. I may have failed to make this clear earlier, but the Gospel of John is considered by most New Testament scholars to be a different sort of gospel than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John is believed to have been written at least a full generation after the other three. During the period in which John was composed, there were numerous movements, philosophies, and ideas floating around, including Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a movement that became popular in the late 1st century and 2nd century AD among certain Christian and Jewish sects. The word gnosis is defined by Merriam-Webster as esoteric knowledge of spiritual truth held by the ancient Gnostics to be essential to, to salvation. The Gospel of John is written from a Gnostic point of view, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, contain much of the same material. John does not. I think the best way to understand the differences in John is to think of it as the mystical gospel. Clearly, the goal in John is to present Jesus as the pre-existing creator God come to earth in human form. 
The writer's desire is to promote and spread the understanding of the mystical Jesus. Salvation comes only through that secret knowledge available to those who believe. Again with the secrets. Generally, those who profess that Jesus claimed to be divine support their argument by referring to certain verses. One example is John chapter 10, verse 30, in which Jesus proclaims, The Father and I are one. They never seem to include the rest of the chapter for context. It reads as follows. Then the people again picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus said to them, I have done many good deeds in your presence which the Father gave me to do. For which one of these do you want to stone me? They answered, We do not want to stone you because of any good deeds, but because of your blasphemy. You are only a man, but you are trying to make yourself God. Jesus answered, It is written in your own law that God said, You are gods. We know that what the scripture says is true forever. And God called those people gods, the people to whom his message was given. John chapter 10, verse 31 through 35. Jesus goes on to say that the Father is in him and vice versa. I find it interesting that Jesus defends his blasphemy by arguing that those who wish to stone him are hypocrites. He's pointing out that in their own scripture, God referred to the people who received his message as gods. Again, those who have been deemed worthy and have been privy to the revealed secret knowledge can be one with God. It's not uncommon for the more mystical factions of religions or philosophies to seek physical and spiritual oneness with their deity. For further understanding of how mystical sects view God and their relationship with the divine, research Sufism. Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. You should also investigate Kabbalah, which is an esoteric discipline within Judaism that's mystical in nature. The purpose of each of these beliefs and practices, including Gnosticism in early Christianity, was and is to seek the spiritual and physical ecstasy from experiencing oneness with God. For a person to claim oneness with God is not the same as claiming actual divinity. It is the mystical climax experienced when that esoteric knowledge is revealed and you're baptized in the sweet celestial juice that not only cures what ails you, but allows you to become one with God. To put it plainly, the writer of the Gospel of John may have been attempting to present Jesus as God, but a mystic or Gnostic would understand that oneness with God is the goal, and attainable if certain knowledge is revealed. Jesus himself, in the alleged quote earlier, 
defends his perceived claims by basically opining that we can all be gods if we are privy to God's secret knowledge. If we can all be one with God, he argues, then his preachments cannot be viewed as blasphemy. The listeners simply couldn't comprehend his message. It was secret, mystical knowledge. I will point out that this exchange is not in the other Synoptic Gospels. The Mystic Meaning Alas, that we are deaf and blind To meanings all about us hid What secrets lurk the woods amid What prophecies are on the wind What tidings did the billows bring And cry in vain upon the strand If we might only understand The brooklet's cryptic murmuring The tongues of earth and air are strange And yet, who knows, one little word Learned from the language of the bird Might make us lords of fate and change Clark Ashton Smith 1912. Another instance of Jesus supposedly claiming divinity is in John chapter 8, verse 58, in which Jesus states, I am telling you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Christian apologists point to this as an unequivocal claim of divinity. Jesus is simply responding to the people who are questioning him on how he speaks of knowing Abraham when he's clearly a young man and less than 50. His response is usually presented completely out of context. If you just read a few verses earlier, Jesus is attempting to persuade those in the crowd who claim that God is their only father, that if that were true, they would listen to his message. It's simply Jesus proclaiming his messages from God. Everyone there is claiming to be God's children, The verse that best puts it in perspective is chapter 8, verse 47. He who comes from God listens to God's words. You, however, are not from God, and that is why you will not listen. Basically, I know some secrets that God told me, and since you don't know it and won't listen to me, you aren't from God. What's interesting about the I am in verse 58, as even in the modern English translation, it could be interpreted simply as, before Abraham was born, God. The argument is always that Jesus' audience would have understood that when Jesus said, I am, he was referring to himself as the Old Testament God who referred to himself as I am, as if everyone at that time would have been biblical scholars and simply recognized the reference. I guess it's irrelevant that most were probably illiterate. The am is even capitalized. Maybe this would be a good time to point out that the earliest manuscripts of these Gospels would have contained no punctuation or capitalization or even spaces between words. Those are modern tools added over the years in translations and interpretations. Well, was he saying, I am? Or, I am? The Christian apologist's argument is that he was saying both. My point is that it doesn't matter 
because he never said any of it. But it's fun to cherry-pick certain individual portions of the New Testament to support our argument. Even in the Gospel of John, Jesus never clearly claims divinity unattainable by others, and the reachable goal of oneness with God is implied through the very nature of the mystical writing. The fact that the writer of John would have viewed the world through a Gnostic lens should inform us in how we interpret the narrative. The fact that it was written long after the other three Gospels should inform us in how we interpret its distinct lack of reliability. One section is used from the Synoptic Gospels as proof of Jesus' claim of divinity. It's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 61 through 62, and reads, But Jesus kept quiet and would not say a word. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed God? I am, answered Jesus. And you will all see the Son of Man seated at the right side of the Almighty and coming with the clouds of heaven. This exchange takes place when Jesus is being questioned by the high priest in council after his arrest. He stands mute and only responds after prodding. The questions are clearly intended to elicit an admission so that punishment could ensue. Leading questions that put pressure on an individual to respond are extremely effective. Usually, no matter what the response the tone can have a negative effect on the trustworthiness and likability of the witness. When I read this, it sounds just like every admission or confession that comes after hours of interrogation. It's usually something to the effect of, fine, I did it. You think I'm guilty anyway, so can we just move the fuck on with it? I must assume that someone in Jesus' position would know that what was coming. Whether he was God, the Son of God, a prophet, or just some schmo, they got sideways with the Roman occupiers. It wouldn't take a prophet or God or psychic to figure it out. Evidently, you could be stoned to death by your neighbors or crucified by the Roman occupiers for just about anything. No Jew in the early 1st century AD would have thought of the Messiah as divine or the son of Yahweh. The idea of Yahweh having a son and that he should be worshipped is both blasphemy and idolatry. Any claim of divinity would be a violation of one of those non-negotiable Ten Commandments that Christians cling to like some perfect list of unforgivable offenses. In those unerring laws given to Moses, Yahweh was crystal clear that he was the only one we should be thinking about, and that worshiping any other gods, that means even his son, would be a violation of those laws. As such, the Jewish Messiah would have been understood as a warrior or king that vanquishes the occupier and reclaims the glory of the Davidic Jewish kingdom, a human, not a god 
or demigod, much less the divine spawn of Yahweh. That would absolutely be blasphemy. Some argue that there is evidence or proof of Jesus' divinity in the resurrection. The premise is that the apostles and disciples, in the face of torture and death, maintained their claim of convening with Jesus post-mortem. If it weren't true, they surely would have just admitted it after a few lashes of the Roman whip. It's also often argued that there's proof of the empty tomb and no report of the body being found. I mean, this is laughable. What proof? All alleged proof of the resurrection is written in the Gospels. There is no record of an empty tomb or resurrection in Roman or Jewish documents from around the same period. It seems that a true account of resurrection after crucifixion, supported by testimony of Roman soldiers and the like, might make it into the news cycle, even back then. There is zero proof. There are only stories told many years later that completely contradict each other, as pointed out in the earlier episodes. The fact that people are willing to die for their faith is not proof of the truth of their faith. If that is the position that you hold, then as of late, it seems that Islam may be the true religion for you. If you question whether suicide bombers are willing to die for their beliefs, then I'm not sure how to convince you. If we can't agree that they are, then we probably aren't going to get much further into our discussion. Certainly we can agree on the unyielding faith or idealism possessed by those who die for it, and that faith and idealism of that sort crosses all religions, philosophies, and cultures. The only logical way to argue that individuals dying for their faith should be treated as proof or evidence of that faith's truth is to argue that any and all of the ideals or faiths that have yielded martyrs are true. Since I don't hear anyone making that argument, I'm going to assume that we can agree that someone dying for a premise or to prove a point does not prove that point. Element 6. Jesus was crucified, and his death was for the forgiveness of the sins of others. The evidence for Jesus' crucifixion is the same as the evidence for any historical fact associated with Jesus. I once again feel as if I would be flogging the proverbial beast of burden corpse if I continuously belabor the unreliability of Scripture, and so... I feel it may be more productive to investigate the salvationists' reliance upon scapegoat ideology. Jesus died for the sins of humanity? This is not only an extraordinary claim, but also hopelessly immoral in almost any other context. Someone or something assuming the responsibility for the sins, that's the intentional actions and thoughts, of others, with the benefit going solely to the sinner, by means of forgiveness, is horrible on its face. I discussed this earlier, but what about the victims? I mean the human ones. How presumptuous is it and how egocentric is it to believe that a person that died around 2,000 years ago somehow pays your debt? Of course, not literally, 
unless you get a check in the mail after drinking Peter Popoff's Miracle Spring Water, but that doesn't pay the sinners, that's the thirsty individuals, debt. It rewards the sinner, once again, for their faith, and evidently relieves them of their responsibility to the aggrieved. I'm in no way condoning or supporting the idea of vengeance or vendetta, but in our society of laws, we have developed codified law as well as common law to provide remedies for those subjected to the sins of others. If harm is done to another person, the person responsible can be held civilly liable or even criminally liable in some circumstances. Common law is the case law that developed in the courts over the past few centuries based upon common practices and ideals. Most of the time, it's referred to in civil matters. Codified law is the Constitution, the rules and statutes passed by legislatures and signed by the executive. In criminal law, we mostly deal with codified law and case law interpreting it. In our system, we provide protection and certain prescribed rights to victims of injustice. There are victims' rights statutes that ensure certain protections to victims and victims' families arguably sometimes at odds with the rights of the accused at trial. Some of you may be thinking to yourselves, well, the accused probably deserves it. If you are, I need to remind you that even though you're not determining the guilt or innocence of another human, that thought is an example of a preconceived bias. As a juror, you're asked to decide the case before you with no preconceptions or biases. Anyway, Where's the remedy for the victim of the sinner? What if the victim, like so many with whom I've come in contact, refuses to forgive the individual that sinned against them? Is that now the victim's problem? Isn't it sinful not to forgive? Sometimes it's so confusing. I guess the Lord truly does move in mysterious ways. He's so unmitigatedly mysterious that it appears that a con man that convinces himself to believe his own con might be able to buy two tickets to paradise, one for himself and one for his overloaded baggage crammed full with the ire of the victims left behind to fend for themselves. It reminds me of a scene in one of my favorite movies, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Pete, Delmar, and Everett are traveling along and they come up on a baptism. Dilmar runs out into the water and gets baptized. And as he's coming out, Pete yells out, Well, I'll be a son of a bitch. Delmar's been saved. And Delmar says, Well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher's done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's the straight and narrow from here on out, and heaven everlasting's my reward. Everett says, Delmar, what are you talking about? We got bigger fish to fry. Delmar says, the preacher says all my sins is washed away, including that piggly wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. Everett says, I thought you said you was innocent of those charges. Delmar says, well, I was lying. And the preacher says that that sin's been washed away too. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water's fine.
Now back to this scapegoat idea. If you can honestly believe that being saved forgives you of your sins and guarantees you a ticket to that city in the clouds, what's the benefit of remaining sin-free? In an earlier episode, I included a quote from Bart Simpson, an American cartoon character. I figure I'll go for a life of sin followed by the presto changeo deathbed repentance. What I didn't include earlier was the traveling preacher's immediate response to Bart in that episode, which is to thoughtfully ponder, wow, that's a good angle, before moving on to recruit Bart for the ministry. I love that episode. It is a good angle. I suppose the faithful will argue that God would know my plan if I were to take that route, and so he wouldn't believe the deathbed repentance. Well, now I think we're at the nana-nana-boo-boo stage of the argument. If I truly repent, what's the difference? Other than you didn't figure it out in time to have any fun. Nana-nana-boo-boo. Until next time. Love ya. Mean it. Thank you.